It is very easy for caregivers to get lost in their role. And that's one of the things I really focus on is the importance of stressing that caregivers health and well-being that that is as important as the health and well-being of their loved one hey one more thing before you go in this episode we're going to learn the importance of caregiving especially with somebody with dementia and why the caregiver should not forget to take care of themselves I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is The Thing About Dementia and the Caregiver. This is our 70th episode, but it actually was recorded as the very first episode, but was never published until now. It's a very personal episode. It's a very personal interview, and we wanted to share it with you. My wife, Diane, and I were the primary caretakers for her father, who had been diagnosed with Lewy body dementia. We took him in when he was 70 years old which is significant in why we decided to post it on our 70th episode. We cared for him for the last 18 months of his life. I'm about to share our journey with taking care of somebody with Lewy body dementia, the importance of caregivers, hospice, and end-of-life care for someone you love. We're going to learn firsthand from Jody Codem, a professional family care consultant. She's a family care consultant with the Alzheimer's Association Desert Southwest Chapter. Where we felt lost, she was the life vest that gave us a plan and understanding in managing his care. At this point, we had learned that we should start developing a care management team. You may not think you need one, but my family and I can tell you from personal experience, it's much better to have one than not. The primary part of that team is having competent and experienced doctors and nurses. The next in line, and we would highly recommend, is a family care consultant like Jody. Welcome, Jody, and thank you very much for being part of our program. Thank you for having me, Michael. Jody has an MSW from San Diego State University. She worked for the Alzheimer's Association as a family care consultant for the last five years and previously was a hospice social worker. Jody's passion is to work with the families of and patients with Alzheimer's and dementia. Jody, can you please tell our listeners what a family care consultant does and how it can benefit those family members who are losing someone through disease such as Alzheimer's or dementia. Family care consultants are dedicated to helping people navigate through the difficult decisions and uncertainties people with Alzheimer's and their families face at every stage of the disease. The goal for each meeting is to receive education about the diagnosis, learn how to make challenging decisions about care, and develop a plan for the future and supportive setting. So to understand how a family care consultant comes into play with something like Alzheimer's and dementia, let's define a caretaker or caregiver. A caregiver comes as an unpaid or sometimes as a paid professional, but for all intensive purposes, our conversation is directed at the unpaid caregiver. They're usually an individual, typically a spouse, a partner, a family member, a friend, or a neighbor who is involved in assisting their loved one who is usually living in the home with the activities of daily living and or medical task. I'm sure that you know if you're listening to this podcast that we're talking about you. But just in case this is an introduction to your journey with Alzheimer's or dementia-related diseases or for any other health issues that arise with the loved one, the numbers may surprise you. 
According to AARP and the United Health Hospital Fund, 57% of caregivers report that they do not have a choice about performing these tasks and that this lack of choice is self-imposed probably out of their personal responsibility based on the fact that no one else can do it or because insurance will not pay for a professional caregiver. The average age of a caregiver is 49.2 years old. 48% of caregivers are 18 to 49 years old. 34% are 65 or older. Although the average age of care recipient is 69.4 years old, almost half are 75 years or older. As a police officer for so many years, I always got this question. I got it so many times, it was like I already had it rehearsed, especially knowing what we do for a living. What motivated you to work in such a career such as this? I've always been drawn to working with the geriatric population from the time I was even a little girl, I was a candy striper at a hospital and enjoyed working uh, with people who were much older than me. I thought they had a lot of wisdom to impart and a lot of stories that needed hearing and just gained a tremendous amount of satisfaction and fulfillment in working with the elderly population. And initially my career uh, took me to working with hospice patients. And then after being there a number of years, I was looking for other opportunities. And I was really drawn towards the Alzheimer's Association because I believe if you haven't known anybody affected by Alzheimer's, you will shortly. And it is a very uh, population that is underserved and deserves our utmost attention and effort. Now would be a good time for some quick facts for our listeners. According to the Alzheimer's News Today, there are an estimated 44 million people worldwide living with Alzheimer's disease or related form of dementia. There are currently an estimated 5.8 million Americans living with this disease. And by the year 2050, this number is projected to rise to nearly 14 million. So knowing that Lewy body dementia causes a progressive decline in mental abilities and that people with dementia experience visual hallucinations and changes in alertness and attention, as well as other symptoms, at what point does a family care consultant or a social worker get involved? Oftentimes, a caregiver will call our helpline. The Alzheimer's Association has a 24-hour helpline available. Any time of day, any day of the week, a caregiver, a professional, a person affected can call our helpline and speak with a trained dementia specialist. And oftentimes this is where I meet my clients is through our helpline. And another way I meet them is professionals in the community, whether they are physicians or home care agencies may send us referrals asking for us to follow up with them. As long as they are given permission by the caregiver, we are able to make contact that way. Luckily, you were referred to us by the Barrow Neurological Institute after we left with the final diagnosis that David had Lewy body dementia. And he was given uh, probably a little less than a year. Is a family care consultant or a social worker typically referred by a doctor or a medical professional of some type, or can a family member contact someone like you directly for help? The majority of our, our clients come to us by way of the helpline. Within my family structure, we have unfortunately had a lot of loss with regard to other diseases such as cancer, alcoholism, and heart disease. Of course, there are very different kinds of diseases than dementia or Alzheimer's, but in many cases, it is still a slow and agonizing experience and very painful for the caregiver. 
Usually it has a much more definitive expectation of conclusion, so sometimes it's easier to deal with. But it still puts a burden on those caretakers that have to live with, take care of, and watch as they lose their loved one. Would you recommend that the family contact a care consultant such as yourself with regard to any other situation where their loved one is diagnosed with a disease that shortens the lifespan? No, we're not specific. So people are welcome to call us if they have loved ones who may have other conditions like vascular dementia, frontotemporal dementia, Lewy body dementia, any number of dementias. They, as long as it is um, a progressive dementia and something of that nature, then we are here to offer support and resources. Absolutely. At the end of the program and on the resource page, I will be providing information with regard to contacting other agencies that are available to help you through any situation that you happen to be going through, whether it be the Alzheimer's dementia and or any other health situation or loss of an individual, including personal. As we said earlier, diagnosing and treating dementias have placed a considerable financial strain on the healthcare system and especially the individual families. So an important question is, is there a cost for the services of a family care consultant or a social worker? And if so, how is that cost covered? There is no cost to working with the Alzheimer's Association. We are the world's leading health organization dedicated towards prevention, care, and support. So that's one of the first things I tell people because I realize they are stretched in so many ways is that there is no charge whatsoever to work with us and this is where you come in, is that more than 16 million Americans provide unpaid care for people with Alzheimer's or other dementias. In the United States alone, these caregivers provide an estimated 18.5 billion hours valued at nearly $234 billion. That number's not worldwide, and it's huge. That's why it's so important to have somebody like Jody, a family care consultant, along for this journey. So once you or somebody like you is involved, what can we as a family and or caregiver expect? Often when I first meet a new client, I try to arrange a face-to-face meeting. Most of those initial meetings happen in their home. Sometimes, though, a caregiver will ask to meet outside of home and they wish to speak one-on-one, maybe apart from their loved one. So uh, we're happy to accommodate that. I've met people in any number of coffee shops or restaurants. I just Mm. want to be able to meet with the caregivers in in an environment they feel comfortable. And uh, my work is primarily with the caregivers because the caregivers are really the patient behind the patient. And so that is where my focus lies. And after that initial meeting... And I conduct an assessment and find out about some of their immediate needs as well as some of their more longer term needs. So my impact is that I can help them to address things both immediately and also on a longer term basis. Because, Michael, some of the things we see is that caregivers often come in two forms. Some are very proactive in that they seek out the information and their planners, and they try to get out ahead of things. And these are the caregivers that we try to turn the other caregivers into. And then the other caregivers to which I'm referring are the ones who are more reactive, and they don't really act until they're forced to act. And then they don't have the luxury of time or planning on their side. Often after that initial meeting, the subsequent contact primarily happens on the phone 
as I recall working with you, a lot of it happened on the phone, but if other face-to-face meetings are needed, I'm happy to come out again or for people to come to our office. We have a lovely family room and um, a comfortable place to meet with families there. And I can really provide ongoing support throughout the duration of the disease. What's really important is that you provide them a safe environment, whether it be at home or outside of the home, so they feel comfortable in discussing and talking about what needs to be done and what kind of plan of management needs to be implemented in order to effectively take care of someone's health in a proactive manner, correct? Exactly. And if I do meet with them in the home, I ask if uh, I'm happy to meet with their loved one, but I want to be able to set aside some time where the caregiver and myself can speak openly and honestly, because one of the things we try to avoid is we don't want to upset the loved one with the condition. And oftentimes talking about their loved one in front of them as if they're not there, that, that doesn't really make someone feel good about themselves. And there have been instances where people have become upset. They've raised their voices. They've walked away in a hurry. They've slammed doors. They've become upset. And this is something we try to avoid. I agree with that. David wasn't always happy, and at least in our personal experience, when we discuss the disease, whether it be with each other and or with relatives or anybody else, for the longest time, he would get really upset and or withdrawn or get mad and want to be alone. So eventually, towards the end, he kind of faced reality and understood really kind of what was going on and At some point, it stopped affecting him so much, but for a long time, um, it was difficult to talk to him or be in the same room with him when we discussed it. Yes, and I think it's important to note that when I do go to people's homes, I always find out from the caregiver what they think would be best in terms of my introduction. So oftentimes I'm not there as someone from the Alzheimer's Association. I might come to someone's home because the doctor sent me, the community center sent me, I'm with rehab. So I always want to enter someone's home and not upset um any of the people in it. So wherever they say I should um, say I'm from, I'm happy to say. I think we've discussed this previously. I find it interesting and very important that you consider your caregivers as your patients. Absolutely. They are the patients behind the patients. And these are really the heroes of of this disease in many ways, because I've seen that the the task of, of being a primary caregiver affects caregivers in so many capacities, and they're at so many increased risk for medical or emotional or psychological or financial problems, that this is where I try to help and be a support to both them and their loved one. Do you find that more caregivers are women than men, or is it about equal? In many respects, uh, women are at the epicenter of this disease. Uh, Women make up more than two-thirds of the individuals with Alzheimer's disease, as well as over 60% of the caregivers. So in the U.S. alone, uh, Michael, it's interesting to note there are 13 million women who are either living with the disease or caring for someone who is living with the disease. And um, often this is a little-known fact. Unfortunately, that's quite a bit. Do you also find that you have a lot of adult children taking care of their parents or their grandparents because of this disease? The majority of the caregivers are spousal caregivers. And then after that, the the next group would be the adult children. Based on that, do you typically customize a program or a plan of action because of somebody being a spouse compared to somebody being 
an adult child taking care of their parent or their grandparent, or in some cases, their own children? Well, I treat every caregiver individually. Just like we know this disease progresses on a very individual nature, it's like that saying they say, if you know 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 people with the disease, that's the number of ways that it may progress. So as many ways as it can progress different for the individual affected, that's the number of ways it affects uh, for our caregivers. So it's important for us to treat everybody in an individual basis and to make customized care planning for them. Jody, this is a significant opportunity for our caretakers and loved ones to get help at a point in the disease progression. It's a relief to know that somebody like you can come in and help them create a customized plan based on their situation. I know that when you came in to help us, it gave us the opportunity to understand what our progression level was with Davis disease and what we should expect as time moved forward. There are many options out there and they're hard to navigate, but just remember that you have help. You just have to reach out and ask somebody. That brings us to our next question, which is very important. Some of our listeners are new to this whole experience in regard to what type of care there is available, such as a facility, hospice, or special memory care facility. Diane and I chose to take care of David here at home as that was his wish, and that enabled us to be able to keep monitoring him a little closer. I know there are some misconceptions in regard to care facilities, so hopefully maybe you can clear some of that up for us. While we do not make individual uh, recommendations of places, we can definitely provide a lot of guidance as to things to look for, the level of care, how to look up um, on the Arizona Department of Health Services website information about deficiencies with facilities, how to connect with senior referral specialists. So we can give a lot of information when someone is deciding that their loved one needs a higher level of care. And aside from all of the logistical aspects, one of our roles is I think to really empower our caregivers because when they are faced with moving a loved one, it's often a decision fraught with guilt and they may be hearing different things from family who aren't necessarily there to see the day to day and they may be getting a lot of different messages and really struggling with when is the time to place my loved one and is it okay? And I really see my role as trying to empower and support our caregivers because nobody is better equipped to make that decision than the caregiver who is caring for this individual day in and day out. Diane and I had the same discussion with David and the rest of the family in regard to where it was best appropriate to put David. There was some difference of opinion with regard to whether or not we should put him in a facility or if the decision that we made was to take care of him at home was the right one. When David was still cognizant, he actually made the choice with Diane and I in regard to wanting us to take care of him at home if we were willing to do so, which we were. We had the benefit of being able to sell two houses in order to get what's called a multi-generational home. So by the time we moved David in with us, this house was built and ready to move in relatively quickly. It worked for us because it had a wing dedicated specifically to David. This allowed privacy for him and privacy for us. At the same time, it allowed us to be able to monitor him and take care of him throughout the last year and a half of his life. To all of us, it was an opportunity for David to spend more time with us and for us to spend time with him. Although Diane works full-time, I was retired and I could stay home and take care of David during the daytime. When Diane got home from work, she would take over the night shift. 
And then we'd alternate in the middle of the night when those unexpected things would wake us up. Although this was trying at times, we thought that was the best decision that we could have made in taking care of David for the last year and a half of his life. And we don't regret that decision at all. On the other hand, we have friends of ours and work colleagues of my wife's that basically have a situation where they are taking care of a family member with Alzheimer's or dementia, actually about a third of her office. And during this time period, they were not in a position to be able to take care of them at home like we were, so they had to put them in a facility. I know that in Diane's conversation, she has learned that these individuals felt guilty. They were troubled by the fact that they um, weren't able to take care of them at home and that they had to put them in a facility and they were constantly had to worry about whether or not the facility was actually taking care of them the way they thought they should be taking care of them. So in that situation, what would you recommend? I think that it's important for people to have a support network, whether that are that is consisting of support groups where they can be with other people who are faced with similar circumstances, whether they call a helpline, whether they work with agencies in the community such as ours. But it's important to express that guilt because there are often any number of feelings associated with moving a loved one or just caring for a loved one too brings up a lot of feelings of, of grief or sadness or resentment. So it's very important for people to have outlets to express those emotions and that they're just not allowed to fester. If somebody chooses or a family decides that it's best to transition this individual into a care facility, whether it be residential care or an assisted living or a specialized Alzheimer's care unit, is that something that you would assist with? Absolutely. That is one of the things we do. We we help not just with the short term, but the long term planning. And the role there is that it's important to help them with the day to day and, and to support the, the caregivers with what they ultimately want to have happen with their loved one. And, and for also them to think about the loved one and them, especially if it's a spousal relationship, have often talked about what's called like the nursing home promise where perhaps early on in the relationship promises may have been made about, oh, you'll never put me in a nursing home, right? Or I'll never do this. And it's okay to have those discussions um, with the caregivers and to explain that oftentimes when those promises were made, it was under very different circumstances and everybody was healthy. So it's important to realize that when circumstances change or the needs of the loved ones change, it is okay to explore other options and caring for a loved one should not come at the health of the caregiver. And remember, you're not alone. Every 65 seconds, someone in the United States develops this disease. More than 16 million Americans provide unpaid care for people with Alzheimer's or other dementia. You need to take care of your patient but you also need to ensure that you don't become one. One of the toughest things to do is go through this alone. And you need to remember that you are not alone. If you are a loved one or in need of help because of your Alzheimer's or dementia diagnosis, or you are a caretaker, a friend, or a family member that needs additional assistance or additional information or resources, you can get help 24 hours a day, seven days a week, at 1-800-272-3900. Again, that's 1-800-272-3900. That's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, a resource for you to reach out and get some help.
that wonderful song that you heard was A Million Things by Emma Marie. All the information on how to obtain that song at the end of the episode. In the meantime, we'll be right back. If you want to one-stop everything for one more thing before you go, visit BeforeYouGoPodcast.com, where you can find each and every episode of One More Thing Before You Go, links to your favorite listening platforms, subscribe and review option, and as a special bonus, by visiting BeforeYouGoPodcast.com, you can purchase any book from our shows, access expanded show notes and guest bios. And if you're a podcaster or just getting started, BeforeYouGoPodcast.com can make your life easier with highly recommended podcast equipment and resources for editing and publishing. It'll make your life easier as a podcaster. Hurry and visit BeforeYouGoPodcast.com as it's the perfect resource for everything you need to listen, learn, and grow your own podcast. There's a million reasons I can't talk to you There's a million things that I can't say to you Since this episode is focused on the caregiver's perspective, Diane, myself, and our youngest daughter, Nicole, experienced an overwhelming sense of duty and obligation and put our own needs aside. I tend to believe that we're not alone in this and that it happens a lot. And on that note, Michael, it is very easy for caregivers to get lost in their role. And that's one of the things I really focus on is the importance of stressing that caregivers health and well-being that that is as important as the health and well-being of their loved one because if the caregivers can't take care of themselves well then how can they take care of somebody else there's a story i have to share with you it's kind of funny actually our journey with david diane's father my father-in-law for about half my life up to this point and grandfather to our kids was actually a long one we had our ups and downs just like everybody else and of course, those of you who are starting this journey will also experience them. But as hard as it is, sometimes you have to look at the little things that bring a smile and a laugh, the humor of the situation, especially when the person getting the biggest laugh is the individual that has the disease itself. David's favorite way of sharing part of his day with us was playing with the chipmunks and the squirrels running around his living room and up and down his arms. We could not see those chipmunks, but he'd laugh and giggle and laugh and point and you can see him watching them run around the room. He'd then look up on his shoulder and see, right there, can't you see him? They ran up my arm and they're sitting on my shoulder. They're telling me to change the channel on you. And just so you know, they tell me when and how to annoy you. He'd laugh and smile and then just go back to watching TV. One of the early signs that we had seen was actually when David forgot how to get dressed. He forgot how to button his shirt, how to button his pants, how to put his pants on or how to put his shirt on correctly. He forgot how to brush his hair and forgot how to brush his teeth and eventually didn't know how to use a razor. So those are things that we had to do on a consistent basis for him. Some of the things that Diane and I had watched and learned to watch for, David's cognitive thinking skills, his critical thinking skills, and his ability to take care of himself on a daily basis diminished. And it diminished monthly and then weekly and then daily and eventually hourly. He was a land surveyor, so he was a very intelligent individual, especially with numbers. It was really sad to watch that he couldn't read a calendar or a clock anymore. 
we had made him a very large print list of the channels on the television so he could change his own channels to whatever he wanted to watch. And we had all these favorites listed there. But it got to a point where he forgot how to operate the remote and then eventually how to read the paper any longer so he could switch them himself. So one of us always had to come in, go through the channels with him physically, and then ask him which program he wanted to watch. Some of the programs he had watched for repeats, he had just seen them a few days ago, but he would look at them and say, oh, this looks pretty interesting. I think I'd like to see that. And he had just seen it a couple of days ago. This was just one of the many symptoms that um, we had learned to understand or come to understand with David, um, hallucinations and things like that were just part of a daily routine now. Jody, what kind of symptoms should these individuals be watching for to know that this individual is having problems, such as the hallucinations and anything else that may come up? In addition to that, how should an individual react to somebody having hallucinations such as that? Because like David, he was in the reality of the time. He felt that everything there was going on was real. So in the early stage, you tend to see problems with word finding and short-term memory and maybe problems remembering the right word or name, challenges performing tasks in social work settings. In the middle stage of the disease, we tend to see people who have personality and behavioral challenges. They might have hallucinations and delusions, I think you were describing with your dad, um, where he was having hallucinations. And uh, as uh, an aside, when we hear of people who have loved ones demonstrating hallucinations or delusions, we always encourage the caregivers to enter their loved one's reality because we can no longer enter, expect of them to enter our reality. It's interesting how they manifest because some of the other hallucinations he was having were things such as a stranger in the mirror when he was standing in front of it. We couldn't figure out why the mirror was getting a bizarre coat of something sticky and whitish all over it. I was watching the camera monitor one day and saw him in the bathroom at the sink after he'd washed his hands and he was talking to the mirror. He was making hand motions and he kind of had to look real close at the mirror and then he'd pick up the air freshener and started to spray the mirror in front of him. Sort of like bug spray. I had to run in and stop him. I say, what are you doing? He said, I'm trying to get rid of that man. He won't leave. And I say, what man? He said, that man looking at me right there in the mirror. And he pointed the reflection of himself. He won't leave. And I tried to shoo him away and he won't leave. So I had to spray this at him and he still wouldn't leave. I asked him, do you not recognize the man? He said, no, I don't. And I don't want him to leave. At that point, I'd have to remind him that one of the benefits of a son-in-law that was a police officer was personal attention and that I would escort the man out of the house and not to worry about him, that he wouldn't bother him, and I would take care of it. At that point, I walked him out to the living room and sat him down. He relaxed and said, thank you, and went back to watching TV like nothing happened. And that's a perfect example of how you entered his reality to help him with the hallucination. There is a term called compassionate communication, and that is what we often try to teach our caregivers is the art of adapting their communication, their way of interacting and approaching and responding to their loved one to really show an understanding of their disease process and the importance of making their loved one feel safe and calm and reassured. And also, uh, that is a, a part of the middle stage. And then just to explain further with your question about the different things you may see in the different stages, in the later stage, you see a loved one who needs round-the-clock care. You see a loved one who's having difficulty performing their day-to-day tasks, and it can go from 
declining ability to sit, walk, stand, and even swallow, and they are more predisposed to getting infections, especially pneumonia or bed sores. So you see as the brain as the center of all of our functioning, how as the disease progresses, they require more and more care. At this point, in your professional opinion, is it common for those that have been diagnosed with dementia, as well as their families, to experience feelings of grief and loss as the disease progresses? We felt like we were losing him every day. It was a long process. I think all those feelings are normal or typical. And for the caregivers, they're experiencing a very unique kind of grief. They're experiencing something called ambiguous loss, which means they are grieving their loved ones, even though their loved ones have not yet died. And so they are losing their loved ones just a little bit every day. And so they call it the long goodbye so that they are going through oftentimes the grieving process while their loved one is still with them in their disease process. Uh, So oftentimes when a caregiver's loved one does indeed die, they may even feel a sense of relief or um, a little bit of lightness, and then they feel guilty about feeling relief. And so... And this is normal. This is normal. And I try to tell them, look, you've already probably done a lot of your grieving while your loved one was, was still alive. We felt that anger was a problem for us for many reasons. The disease and the situation profoundly affected our relationship as a couple and as the children of a parent that essentially becomes the child, as well as the relationship with our daughters, David's granddaughters. On that same note, we felt guilty if we requested someone to come in and take care of David or have his granddaughters take care of him in order for us to go out as a husband and wife. Even something as simple as going to a movie or going to dinner. We didn't want to burden anyone, including other family members. And we were constantly checking in as we did when our kids were born. Is it normal to have some of the typical grieving processes involving the guilt, the anger, the denial, the sadness, and the acceptance in regard to losing someone slowly over time? Those things are totally normal to feel feelings of guilt or anger. When you're caring for someone with Alzheimer's, not only does it change your relationship with that person, but it changes, I think, all the relationships in that family. And you have to carve out that time to keep up your other identities as being a part of a couple or being um, a, a sibling or whatever that relationship is. Because if all of your attention is solely focused on being a caregiver, you are going to cause even more anger and resentment. And you have to focus also on your other roles, not just a caregiver. And an important thing I'd like to point out is that one thing we know is that caregiving is not a one person job. Sometimes people think, oh, I can do it and nobody can take care of them like me. That is a recipe for disaster. That is um, something I never encourage. I tell people that it's always okay and necessary to ask for help. And it's always okay to do things for yourself because it's just like what they say when you get an airplane, if you're with someone who needs a little help, you're always told to take care of yourself first before assisting the person you're with. So the same thing goes in caregiving. I think that's a very important takeaway from this conversation. As a caretaker, I'm guilty of it. My wife's guilty of it. My daughter was guilty of it. We constantly put David first because we felt obligated to do so, and that was our job to do. We felt that this individual needed to be addressed before anything else, and that all his needs needed to be taken care of. This is where some of the guilt and the anger that we'll talk about here in a little bit come into play because we felt guilty about the fact that we wanted to pay more attention to ourselves and to our relationship as husband and wife, which we forgot to do. 
and with our daughter, which we forgot to do, and with the rest of the family, which we forgot to do. As a result, my health suffered. I have severe rheumatoid arthritis, which we were already dealing with, and I deteriorated at a very rapid rate, mostly due to the stress and the constant uh, no sleep and the constant up and down and the constant having to lift him and to set him down and take him to the restroom, et cetera, et cetera, which I'm sure a lot of you out there are feeling and doing the same thing. My wife, Diane, injured herself twice while taking care of David. And instead of going to the doctor and taking care of it, she kind of pushed it aside and that created issues down the road. And she did so because she felt it was more important to stay here and take care of her father in lieu of going to the doctor. And being a caregiver, you're in a unique category where you're at increased risk for things like anxiety, depression, worsened sleep, higher mortality, financial strain, losses of emotional losses in other relationships. So people who are caregivers often um, are in poverty more than people who aren't in caregivers. They often retire, quit, pass up job promotions, job opportunities more than non-caregivers. So because of the position they're in, just by virtue of being a caregiver, it is incumbent upon them to focus on their health, their well-being, their self-care. And this is something I always talk about is their self-care and the importance for them to take Take care of themselves to make sure every day they're doing something for themselves. Nothing big, nothing that takes a lot of time or planning, but just things they're inserting into their day to kind of nourish themselves and care for themselves. That's outstanding advice. You know, in our situation, the whole family dynamic had changed. It wasn't just Diane and I. Our daughters, his granddaughters, my family, my sisters, my brother-in-law, my nieces, my nephews, David's sisters, and his nieces and nephews. This whole process and this disease actually changed everything about the family structure and what we were expecting. Everyone was completely supportive, just a lot of times they didn't know exactly what to expect about this journey. They weren't that familiar with the aspect of dementia, although David's sisters were in the nursing um, business, and uh, two of them actually understood wholeheartedly what the dementia was and what Alzheimer's was and the what it took to take care of somebody like that. They insisted several times that Diane and I kind of make sure that we're taking care of ourselves along this journey and what they expected. Absolutely. And these are things we hear about that oftentimes people don't understand about this disease is how much it takes away from you and how how much is required of the people providing the day-to-day care. And we, as probably many of you did, developed a strategy where we took care of David in shifts. Since Diane worked full-time, I did the day shift. When Diane came home in the evening, we kind of worked together until it was time to go to bed, and then Diane took over the night shift. Eventually, Nicole moved in with us, and when Nicole moved in, it took the burden off of both of us, and she helped take care of him both during the daytime and at night. We actually felt kind of guilty that we were trying to concentrate more on ourselves in spite of everything and the offer from help from any of our relatives. We didn't want to burden them with anything. It took us a long time to learn that uh, we shouldn't feel guilty about asking for help and or having somebody extend a hand to us. Diane and I were very lucky in the fact that David had sisters and brothers-in-laws that understood what it is to take care of somebody that has a serious health issue. They were fully aware of the necessity of her and I as caretakers needing a refresher break, both prior to Nicole moving in and after she did. They came out as many times as they could arrange. 
They all live out of state and would make arrangements to come visit anywhere from a few days up to a week long to take care of him, especially in the months prior to him passing. It definitely took the stress off Diane and I as well as Nicole once she had moved in to help. Because of the fact that David had dementia, it's a very difficult disease to manage, as we all know. We knew we could trust them, and the additional benefit for all of us was the fact that they were spending more time as brother and sister. We were very grateful they had the means and the opportunity to come help. The first time they came out, we actually got to go see three movies, have lunch, and dinner, all on the same day. I don't think we've ever done that, even when we weren't taking care of anybody. Eventually, we were able to take a long overdue vacation because of them coming out to take shifts with him. It was really nice to get away and not have to worry. Well, Michael, I can actually recall when you told me about that, about them coming and taking care of David. And I was so happy for you and Diane to just get out and relate as a couple. And I'm so happy that your family gave that to you. And I'm so happy that you you asked for and received the help. And it made us happy also. We also have to give credit to Diane's supervisors and her work colleagues, who were also very cognizant of what was going on. And near the end of David's life, they didn't hesitate to insist Diane take the time to come home and spend it with her father, of which we were very grateful for. And as I had said in previous episodes and uh, before, our youngest daughter, Nicole, actually had the opportunity to move in with us and to help us immensely while in the home on a regular daily basis. We also have a nice family network that we relied on if we need anything else. Caitlin, our oldest daughter, and her husband, Cord, my sister and brother-in-law, my niece, my nephew, and some of our friends. So be aware of those around you that actually can extend help for you. You just have to be willing to accept it. As things progressed, another place that we actually found some help originated with you. You had sat down with us doing a questionnaire in regard to the level of degradation that David was currently at. And then told us that we might consider some other options that were available, such as hospice care. Well, because of you, we had a fantastic team from the hospice facility here locally that came in first, twice a week, and then every other day, and eventually daily. It really helped to alleviate some of our tasks and take the burden off our shoulders on such things as giving him a shower, shaving him, hygienic type things, monitoring his blood pressure and vitals. They taught us how to get him in and out of the chair, in and out of bed, into the bathroom. It was really nice. It relieved a lot of stress from us. Hospice can be a, a wonderful benefit to people. It is end-of-life care, and oftentimes people don't understand that they can get hospice care a couple ways. Either they can approach the primary doctor caring for their loved one for a referral to hospice, and somebody will come out to see if they're eligible. Another way, though, and many people aren't aware of, is that anybody can, on their own, call any hospice anywhere, and hospice will happily send out somebody to do an evaluation. Now, they have to meet certain criteria, and uh, a physician has to believe that a person's life expectancy is not greater than six months if a disease runs its normal course. But if that is the case, and if the individual and their family are in favor of comfort measures only, oftentimes hospice can be a wonderful service that can provide a multidisciplinary team to help the people, including a doctor a nurse, a social worker, a chaplain, a volunteer, 
respite and they can provide medications related to a diagnosis that they came on hospice for. They can provide durable medical equipment, often home delivery of prescriptions. So there's often a lot to be gained for going on to a hospice. And it's been my experience that sometimes people believe hospice care is for when things are imminent or I kind of have the vision of like the Grim Reaper and people really lose a lot of the benefit that could have been gained. And when I was a hospice social worker, oftentimes I would see somebody coming on hospice when their loved one had very, very little time left and so didn't reap the benefit that they could have had they had their loved one on sooner. So they can either reach out to the doctor if they think that their loved one is needing essentially 24-hour care, is becoming increasingly incontinent, is not able to handle their activities of daily living. Um, Or like I said, they can also reach out to any hospice and ask them to come out and evaluate their loved one. Another benefit that um, I thought was very, very important and actually we were unaware of, um, hospice was able to give us a uh, short break where they took David into a care facility that was specific to dementia um, here in Arizona that um, kept him in there for about five days. And it gave uh, Diane and I, uh, without sounding weird, it kind of gave us a vacation from what we were having to deal with on a regular daily 24-7 basis. It actually, even that five-day time period, we we had a hard time even uh, going to sleep the first couple of nights because, you know, we were so used to being on edge and so used to being on alert uh, for anything that could take place throughout the night that we had a hard time sleeping. But by the third day, guaranteed, we slept in. That's wonderful. And I have some clients whose loved ones are on hospice and they speak very um, favorably about the respite that you're referring to the five-day respite. I believe it's offered in different cert periods and they really take that time and they go rejuvenate, refresh. They focus on themselves and it's another wonderful benefit to being on a hospice service. Yeah, respite was actually able to take care of him in such a manner that he had a urinary tract infection that we were unaware of. And when they brought him into respite, they did a full exam on him and had determined that he was having an issue there that we were unaware of that could have turned into something more uh, devastating, I guess. Um, than, than what it was. So they were able to get things taken care of. So prior to him coming back, they were able to get him squared away, um, which we thought was really nice. That's wonderful. Maybe they caught the urinary tract infection just at the start of it because we have heard so many times where something that sounds as minor as a urinary tract infection can just cause such a, a change in functioning and behavior on the part of a loved one. So it sounds like you really uh, lucked out there that they caught it possibly very early on. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They got, got on it right away and they helped us get the care that needed to be done and put him on a regimen and was taken care of. And his discomfort that he was experiencing went uh, was resolved, mm-hmm. which really worked out well. Jody, if someone is struggling to cope with the Alzheimer's or dementia diagnosis, whether they are the individual themselves and or they are a caregiver, a family member, or a friend, and they could use a support system in their corner, where would they look for help? I would encourage them to call organizations like ours. They can call us directly or they can call our 24-hour helpline, which is 1-800-272-3900. I think a support group is a wonderful area where they can meet with others face-to-face who are going through similar things. There's even online support groups, and we have one through the Alzheimer's Association, and they need to just reach out because I think as a caregiver, there is a natural tendency to to kind of isolate and pull away from relationships. And so it's 
incumbent that people get those necessary relationships and have outlets. Now, just to confirm, that 1-800 number is national. You don't have to be living in Arizona in order to call that number, correct? Exactly. You can call that number from anywhere in the country, and it will route you to the office closest to you based on the area code you're calling from during regular hours. If it's outside regular hours, those car calls are answered to, by our national office, which is located in Chicago. Is there anything that you would like to add that would benefit those individuals that want to say one more thing before their loved one leaves? I think it's important to just never miss an opportunity to tell people how you feel. Don't wait because if you wait, it may be too late. I have faith that being a family care consultant is as satisfying for you as it was for us and to have you part of our lives during the one of the most difficult times of our lives. Thank you so much for having me on, Michael. And remember, you're not alone. Every 65 seconds, someone in the United States develops this disease. More than 16 million Americans provide unpaid care for people with Alzheimer's or other dementia. You need to take care of your patient, but you also need to ensure that you don't become one. One of the toughest things to do is go through this alone. If you are a loved one or in need of help because of your Alzheimer's or dementia diagnosis, or you are a caretaker, a friend, or a family member that needs additional assistance or additional information or resources, you can get help 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 1-800-272-3900. Again, that's 1-800-272-3900. And if you love Million Things by Emma Marie, who was so kind to lend her voice and talent to our podcast... I'll provide a link in the show notes of how to purchase that and support this wonderful artist. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story. Share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.